Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3. And our text from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 18 are as follows. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Father, we do ask this morning that our hearts would be captured with the sufficiency of your word, that we would look exclusively, singularly to the reality that you have laid out for us in print the very essence, the very basis of your heart. We don't have all that there is to know about you exhaustively in your word, but we have all that is necessary and available in your word and only in your word So we ask that you would give us hearts that are in tune to that reality. That we would be humble under the judgment and scrutiny and correction of your word. That we would think in terms of Paul's words to the the young pastor Timothy when he said to them that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. May we understand and believe and be dependent upon this distinctive relationship between spiritual growth and the essence of your word, that we would grow to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that in so doing, we would willingly and humbly and graciously and gratefully look back upon the reality that it is not only the indwelling of your Spirit, but the filling of your Spirit in us that would enable us to understand and obey your Word. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, and we pray this morning as we look at this text that we would be inclined to and equipped to give a defense for the hope that is in us to everyone who asks us to give an account for it and that we would be prepared to do so with gentleness and reverence. And of course, we ask these things in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We told you last week, and we repeated again this week, that We're going to look at the preparation necessary for evangelism so that through us, others will be brought to God. Those terms really come out of our text. We want people to be brought to God. We don't want to bring people to God. That's not our role. That's not what we do. We don't have that ability. 
but we want people to be brought to God through us. So it's not as if you are uninvolved. You are certainly involved in your heart, and you must be involved with your actions, and you must be involved with your words. So those three things, really, those three vehicles must be congruous. You must think the right thoughts, you must exhibit the right actions, and you must say the right words. Evangelism that's missing any one of those ingredients is not biblical evangelism. There's a lot going on. We've talked much about this in terms of manipulation and entertainment-based efforts to manipulate people or persuade them to be a part of the church, to fill the empty chairs, which ultimately in many, many cases is intended for the most part to fill the pocketbook of the one who sits at the top of that heap. So our desire must be, as I said, congruous with our actions and with our words. We must be bent upon the need to be not simply indwelt, but filled with the Holy Spirit, living righteous and holy lives that are ultimately and completely dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ, that we would not somehow develop the ability to be persuasive, to usher people into the kingdom, to somehow bring people to God by our abilities, but that we would be prepared so, in a, a string of 10 messages that I am fairly convinced will conclude next Sunday, today we focus on, we emphasize man's preparation. Next week will be man's practice. But today we look at man's preparation. And I think it's not surprising, it shouldn't be surprising to us that when things go awry, really in any effort, Many times we can look back to a lack of preparation. Not always, but certainly when it comes to biblical evangelism. When things go wrong, and I'm not talking about we can't get people to make decisions. Why aren't people more making more decisions? Why aren't more people coming down the aisle? Why aren't we seeing more people do more things? That's not what I'm talking about. I, I think that that by no means is the measuring rod for biblical success in regard to evangelism. What I'm talking about is that point at which we would look at our evangelism and say, where is this in the Bible? That's what I'm talking about. When we would say that our efforts are not congruous with what the Scripture reveals, and more important than what it reveals, what it prescribes. You understand the difference? We see things in the Scripture that reveal what has happened, and when we look for what we should do and how we should be involved, we look for commands. There are things in the Bible that are descriptive. They describe what has got on. But that is not always necessarily what we are prescribed, what we are instructed or commanded to do. This is a major fault that we have hoped to and endeavored to remedy in our hermeneutic study and our how to study the Bible studies. Helping people understand that there are things in the Bible that you are not prescribed to do. Uh, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the sign gifts. There's no prescription for the sign gifts to continue today. There is a description of them in the Scripture. But once you understand that basic hermeneutic principle, that there are commands in the Bible and there are narratives in the Bible, and there are other forms and genres of literature, as you know. Most of you know that because you've been through that study recently and You've made great effort to understand that and put that into practice in your own personal Bible study efforts. 
Once you understand that basic principle, a lot of the clouds get swept away. The mist is removed. You know, the, the distinctions between certain denominations and really, in many cases, between biblical Christianity and faulty uh, counterfeit religions many times can be traced back to a lack of understanding and application of that principle. So we look for the commands, and we have here before us a command. Be ready. Your translation may say, be prepared. You know, some of you are in high education-based employment. Whether it was training in college or postgraduate work or your training on the job, the job what you're doing right now is greatly dependent upon information that was delivered to you that you were required to receive eagerly and to apply to your mind and to your practices so that you would be effective in that work. And the moment you divert from that education, from that training, you get a furrowed brow from your boss who says, hey, that's not the way we do things around here. I remember years ago, I, I didn't study to be a systems analyst, but that's what I did for five years. By God's grace, I found my way into that job. In the moment, I felt like, it was, like I fell into it, but now looking back, understanding from the Scripture, it was God's providence that He blessed me with that boss. And as I began to be involved in that job as a very young man. I was working the graveyard shift, and I'd work from about 10 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning, and there were all these manuals around, and they said, you know, just kind of read through those as you can, get to know the work environment. We'll, uh, you know, just trust that you're going to be doing that, but, you know, use your time as you see best. Well, at one point, because I was real, I was still kind of reeling from the experience of learning to work the graveyard shift, I felt it was the best use of my time to take a nap. <laughs> and I was partly responsible for a $25 million computer room. So here I am in what they used to call the pig pen. Uh, this was the control room for the whole computer center. I think they called it a pig pen because it was awfully, often messy. And so um, I had done all my work. All the reports were done. I had printed everything that needed to be printed. I had communicated by email to everyone that I needed to communicate to. And so I had my feet up on the desk, my arms folded, my parka on, and I'd been out for a little while. Much to my surprise and chagrin, I woke up to an elbow in my ribs. A gentle elbow, but nonetheless, an elbow. And so one of the engineers was saying, I think maybe you should wake up. And I looked, and the pig pen had about six men in it. It was about five in the morning. As you might imagine, my boss sent me an email that day, and so after my next shift, I was asked to stick around to talk to him. I had no idea why. <laughs> he said to me, so how's it going? You know, you're still kind of new here. How's it working out? I said, great. I think I'm getting the hang of it. You know, I'm... Learning a little bit at a time. And, and you know what? I've got a lot of extra time you know, on my shift. It's so long, and there's really not that much to do. I get some reading done, and every now and then I take a nap. I'm catching up on my sleep. He said, oh, yeah, well, we don't do that around here. That's not how things work around here. We didn't ask you to take this job with your college degree and with the training that you had received in other situations that are revealed on your resume so that you could sleep. I was 22 years old. That's no excuse. 
Let me just tell you, I've never done that again. I wasn't prepared for the massive responsibility that they thought I was prepared for. And many times, whether it's evangelism or whatever spiritual responsibility, there are those who, with some degree of innocence, really confessing, this is what we've been doing in evangelism. We've been working on this program that helps people make decisions. It persuades them to do things like ask Jesus into their heart and to make him Lord of their life. Again, as you know, things that are not in the Bible. But there is some innocence, I must confess, with regard to many people who think that way because they've been taught so poorly for so long. So my goal, and I believe this must be the goal of every shepherd, it is the mandate of the man of God who is described in the Bible to equip the saints for the ministry of evangelism. And I believe you want that. I believe that's your desire. And I've had conversations with some of you over the course of the last three months we've been, when we've been doing this study that you are now feeling as though you are actually able to have the conversation, but also of equal importance to have the sensitivity or the sense to know when and when not to have the conversation. And that's very important. That is the result of walking by the Spirit, being in the Word, trusting that the Lord is going to give you discernment in the moment. Last week, we spent our time, for the most part, in verse 13. And point number one was this. I'll just give it to you again. Point number one, suffer for what is good and be blessed. This really is Peter's heart. Suffer for what is good and be blessed. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's not so much of a rhetorical question in terms of there being no one to harm you. As you know, there are those who will harm you. The point is that in the harming, there is good. There is blessing. There is joy. If you prove zealous for what is good, the point is, what does it really matter if you experience some degree of harm? You're going to heaven. It's temporary. It's momentary light affliction. You've heard the phrase, some people are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. That person does not exist. That's a really bad phrase. The reality is the person who is most heavenly-minded is most earthly good. Why? Because he's not so concerned about, oh, I got treated poorly in this situation. I can't believe the way that person looked at me. I can't believe they didn't call me when I was having such a hard day. Uh, their focus is so much upon self. Why? Because their focus is not at all on the things of heaven. Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. You're not yet above. Get your mind off you and on things that are above and be concerned about the fact that there are people next to you at work and in your neighborhood who are desperate with not an ounce of joy and then the moment that they have joy on occasion it's fleeting and it's not real if you're in christ your heart is set on heaven primarily and yes that's obscured from time to time because there are difficulties that arrive in your life just like Everyone else, just like me, we have difficulties that arrive in our life and instantaneously the temptation comes to think, poor little me. Rather than, Father, thank you 
for the opportunity to suffer on your behalf that I might in this moment exhibit the kind of witness that says I can handle it. Not in and of myself, and certainly not by myself, but in the persecution, in the, the accusations, the false accusations. There is enough of a likeness in my life to Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ considers me worthy to receive those accusations, those persecutions, those difficulties, those trials. Now, the context of what's going on in 1 Peter, as you know, is not self-inflicted difficulty, right? That's a different issue. Peter here is not talking about the difficulties that you and I bring on ourselves, what some would call the natural consequences of wayward conduct. Here he is talking about the person who is faithful to Jesus Christ and therefore suffers, and he says it's good. He says it's good. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. We don't really know much about this in our country, but you've observed it on the Internet. You've watched, you've seen, you've heard, you've read of what is going on in other nations throughout the world with regard to Christian persecution. And we don't think much about it. We don't really endure it. That's for sure. And when we compare what we are subject to in terms of difficulties, the bigger problem for us is that we're not prepared for it. For the most part, we have not experienced legitimate persecution. There might be some of that going on in your workplace, maybe even in your home. It's very possible. But not to the degree that it could happen and seemingly very likely will with regard to what's happening politically throughout the world and particularly in Washington, D.C. And that might cause you to be concerned. It should but your best preparation for what could and seems like likely will come is not to become more equipped politically. The best thing you can do is become more equipped spiritually. And so we ask the question, what are you doing in terms of discipleship? Where is your heart with regard to becoming equipped, not only to be able to withstand whatever persecution may come, but, be able, but to be able to help equip others for that. You love people. I don't question that about you or anyone I know. You love people. I love people. What is the best thing you can do for those whom you love? Help equip them as you yourself are equipped to understand what it means to be spiritually mature prepared to give that defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now think of it. When you experience trial and you just kind of flip out, nobody's looking at you going, man, why is he so hopeful? <laughs> no, they're thinking, you know, you're no different from me. In fact, you're worse than me, you know, in some cases, right? Some people just seem to be even keel, steady eddie, just cuz. I don't seem to be bothered by much of anything. There might be more of apathy than anything else. But either way, the reality is your privilege, my privilege, is to look at the suffering we endure, especially when there's some seeming ability to trace it, to trace it back to Christian righteousness, living rightly, 
determining to be honest no matter what. Being willing to speak the truth in love. Handling things in a way that would honor Jesus Christ. The question ought not to be, what would Jesus do? The question ought to be, what would Jesus have me do? How can I best honor him with my life? Verse 14, as you know, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You see that? If you suffer for the sake of righteousness, and again, most of us, I, I think it's safe to say that most of us could probably take all of our sufferings throughout our lifetimes and, and, and categorize them. And you just kind of envision putting them in some kind of a box. Take all those sufferings, and, and very likely you could, you could put all of those in the same box, and you could categorize that, categorize that box as self-inflicted suffering, things I brought on myself. And you might have a thimble full of non-self-inflicted difficulties or persecutions or trials. I don't know. But my point is, that is the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about. So be honest about this. You know, don't just say every time you experience some difficulty, well, it's because I'm a Christian. Everybody hates Christians who, you know, read their Bible all day at work. <laughs> you know, that's just not even acting like a Christian. That's acting like an unbeliever who just wants to do what he wants to do. It's disobedience to Christ when you're not working diligently for your boss. We've been over that. But again, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. There's a blessing in the suffering. Yeah, the, the bulk, the majority, the larger percentage of the blessing, the massively, infinitely larger portion is in heaven. But there's blessing in the moment. The unbeliever cannot comprehend this, wants nothing to do with this, says it's ridiculous, it's unfair, it doesn't make sense to me. Why? Because the unbeliever is not indwelt by the Spirit of God. Therefore, every time any degree of suffering enters his life, he says, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He looks at this concept and says it's foolish. Who in their right mind would embrace suffering and say that I'm blessed when, I'm, when I suffer? Friends, if that is your concrete devotion, if that's how you believe, then mark it down. Paul the Apostle is talking about you when he says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness to him and he cannot comprehend them. He's talking about you if that's the case. So what is your problem? You may have lots of problems, but the primary problem is that you have a zeal for God without righteousness. There's not a hunger uh, without knowledge. You have a zeal for God without knowledge. There's no knowledge of righteousness. That's Romans 10. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And so you pat yourself on the back every time you say to someone, oh, you shouldn't use the, name, the Lord's name in vain. Or you pat yourself on the back every time you open your Bible, every time you go to church, look at what I'm doing. It's legalism. It's a devotion to self-promotion. When really, the non-legalist, the person who is saved by grace, through faith, is a gift of God. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. And he's concentrating on that. He's remembering that. He's focused upon that. He's willing to endure with joy and, and consider it a blessing when he suffers. He's willing to do that. 
And that's not to say that it's easy, but it is to say that it should be increasingly becoming the default mindset of that person. The remainder of verse 14 says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Don't fear those who intimidate you against communicating the gospel. Those who, there are those who will desire to hear that account from you with regard to why you have that hope. But there will be those who will intimidate you. They will want you not to engage in evangelism. They will want you not to give that defense. And I don't think Peter here is referring so much to the person who is not interested in hearing the gospel in terms of uh, how you abstain from any kind of interaction from that person. In other words, we've told you many times from Proverbs 9, Matthew 7, if someone's not interested in the gospel, walk away. You know, our role is not to jam the gospel down somebody's throat. That's not helpful. We talked a lot about you know, faulty bullhorn evangelism where you just cram it into people's minds in such a way that they have to listen because they can't hear anything else and not even themselves think. So who are we to not fear? Well, those who are being intimidating and attempting to prevent us from evangelizing others in a natural, normal environment, in a place where it would make sense, where the Spirit of God paves the way for you to engage in evangelism and someone is trying to prevent you from doing that. Don't fear that person. But if the person you're trying to evangelize is not interested, walk away. Point number two, set apart Christ in your heart as your master. This, this is what you must do, this is what I must do. How are you going to be effective in evangelism? Set Christ apart in your heart as your master. Now let me tell you what I did not say and what Peter is not saying. Make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. He's not saying that. The Bible never tells you to make anybody, much less Jesus Christ, the Lord of your life. Think of it. For you to make him be the Lord of your life means that you first must be the Lord. If you're going to make him do anything, you must have greater sovereignty and power than he does. This is not what Peter is saying. It's certainly not what I'm saying Set apart Christ in your heart as your master. In other words, think in reality. Recognize the reality that he is the Lord of your life. Verse 15, as you know, says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The term really means to set apart. It means to recognize the holiness of. This is to treat him as holy in your heart. You remember from Romans 10, Verses 2 through 4. For I testify about them, about the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the, this is the idea. You're meditating on the reality that all things in the Bible ultimately lead to one's subjection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. D. Edmund Hebert says, Peter stressed the basic duty of making Christ supreme in the inner life and then set out supporting personal requirements for an effective testimony to the adversaries in verses 15b through 16. In other words, what Peter is calling us to here 
is acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ in the inner man, in the inner life, and then setting out based upon the remaining portions of this passage to let that be real in our actions. That the external conduct of our lives would be rooted in a particular heart attitude, which is an axiomatic truth anyway. You act like what you think. So think rightly about Jesus Christ and you will exhibit his person, his character. This verb does not mean to make holy, but to treat as holy. By the way, Jesus is Lord. No one ever made him Lord, right? You've heard that phrase so many times, though. In many cases, it's become part of your theology, become part of your belief system. You know, I heard about Jesus. I heard some preaching. You know, I talked to some people. You know, I decided he's, a, he's, he's good peeps. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make him the boss of my life. That was the term in the 80s. I'm going to make him my boss. He's in charge now. Handed the keys over to him. No longer co-pilot, baby. He's in charge. It's just silly. But friends, it's so common until you hear, you know, all you have to do is read this passage for you to say, whoa, that's, that's way shallow at best. Jesus is Lord. You don't make him Lord. As I said, for you to make him Lord would be for you to first be Lord to be able to do that. You don't make him anything. In Matthew 28, we've been over this many times, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. You don't have authority to breathe your next breath. Right? Do you think about that? See, that's what this is, to set him apart as Lord in your life, to be thinking about him and his character. But what happens when we default down a sinful drain pipe is that we have stopped thinking about who he is and what he has done. We've stopped meditating on his mastery. And we've somehow become convinced that we ourselves are master of our lives. The passage, as you know, goes on to give us the, the great commission for which the church exists. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just one more note on charismatic theology. This cuts at the root of the basis of charismatic theology, which says you can grab your salvation or you can lose it by sin. What does Jesus say here, though? I am with you till the end of the age. Why is that? Because before the beginning of the age, he determined to be with you. He determined to set you apart so that you would set him apart in your heart. You cannot eliminate the presence of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can also never feel it. You say, oh, no, no, no. I've felt the presence of God before. I feel it all the time. No, you don't. You know how I know that? Because there is absolutely nothing in the Word of God that communicates anything like that at all. Whatever you're feeling is probably very real. But it is not the presence of God. 
of God. Now think of it this way. For those who think, they feel the presence of God. And then for some reason later, they don't feel the presence of God. Did he leave? He says he never will leave you. But sadly, there are those who have considered themselves Lord and master of their lives, and they might not ever say it that way, but they certainly operate that way. They refuse to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ and wait for a feeling to do anything about it rather than recognizing the mandate of the Scripture to simply be obedient to Him, whether or not you feel it. And by the way, you will feel it. In other words, you will ultimately have the desire to honor Him because that is part of being a Christian. He is determined to set you apart, and therefore He has given you a deep hunger for Him, for His Word, for His church, for righteousness, for purity. He has placed those desires in you, and yes, they are from time to time obscured, but they cannot be killed. They cannot be taken away. But this is a command, and it's commanded that we do it in our hearts. Romans 10, starting with verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you see, the beginning of this normal, natural, progressive concept in the Christian life is the moment of regeneration. You see that? The moment you believed where? In your heart was the moment at which he produced in you a long-term, really a lifelong, really an eternal desire to set him apart in your heart. It started at the moment of spiritual conception. Verse 10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Are you believing in him right now? I'm not asking, are you a Christian? I'm asking, are you deliberately, strategically, systematically, passionately choosing now, in this moment, to believe rightly about him? Or are you stuck on your traditions and things you've been taught your whole life that are opposed to what I'm telling you? Which is it? Are you bent on believing right now? That's what results in progressive righteousness. That's what results in sanctification. That's what results in further dependence upon him. You're setting him apart in your heart as Lord. You're not making him Lord. You're acknowledging that he is Lord. You're not causing him to be holy. You are recognizing his holiness. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. If he's Lord over all, it means Jesus is my Lord. That's what you're saying when you confess Jesus as Lord. You're saying, Jesus can call the shots for my life. Jesus can tell me how I should think about myself and about marriage and about the world. Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, not me. I'm not an autonomous creature. I live to serve this master. That's what you're saying, end quote. That's a good definition. It's very practical. It's very helpful. You're acknowledging what Jesus can do. You're not giving him the authority to do it. You're thinking the right thoughts about the reality of who he is and what he's capable of. Again, it's a matter of deliberately cultivating right thinking. And you know this. The moment that you're depressed the moment that you're discouraged, the moment that you're bitter, the moment you begin to gossip, you begin to slander other people, what's happened? You stepped onto the slippery slope that started with a lack of willingness to be thinking about Jesus Christ. 
You started thinking about you or somebody else or something in between. You started meditating on something that you don't like. And you fed it. You fanned the flame. You poured gasoline on the flame. And pretty soon you're so mad at somebody else because they're doing what you don't want them to do or they're not doing what you want them to do. You've completely abandoned all thought of God's sovereignty and you've abandoned all thought of his love for you and that he was willing to receive your punishment for you. See how quickly you can get yourself back on the right manner of thinking by setting him apart as Lord in your heart. He is your master. Stop thinking thoughts that defy what he has said. In Matthew 22, verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the greatest and foremost commandment. That's it. That's what you do. That's the gateway into all obedience. That's the entry point into all things Christian. You start with a love for the Lord your God, and you start with a willingness to do that with all that you are. This is very similar to Jesus' words in John 4, where he said there is coming a day where the Lord is looking for worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit, what is that? To be honest, it's to be genuine, it's to do it wholeheartedly. That's what the Lord wants from you. He wants to, you to love Him, to obey Him, to trust Him, to worship Him with fullness of heart. In other words, set Him apart in your heart as Lord. You'll have an opportunity to do this momentarily when we sing, and these are, these are some of the words you're, you're going to sing in a bit. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. See, that is setting Jesus Christ apart in your hearts and then communicating that with your lips. Further, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. See, that's your burden. You know what your greatest burden is? It's your sin. But guess what? I'm called to bear that burden with you. That's what Paul means in Galatians 6, where he says we are to bear one another's burdens. He has already pointed out the need for those who are spiritual to minister to others who are in sin, lest they themselves become in sin. And then the command is that we are to bear one another's burdens. What is that burden in that context, in that moment, in Galatians 6 too? What is the burden? The burden is sin. We often look at people, we've all been guilty of this, who are in sin. It's obvious they're in sin. And what do we do with that? They just need to get their life right. They just need to stop sinning. That's true. But your role and my role is to look at that person with compassion and to acknowledge that the sin that they are in, yet it is their fault and their responsibility. It is a burden. Don't you love this, though, in this great hymn of the faith? And there may I, though vile as he, as vile as the thief on the cross, wash all my sins away. See that? That's the beauty of setting Christ apart in your heart as Lord. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. How about that? 
See, that's the blessing of heaven. You've heard people say, oh, I can't wait to get heaven because I'm going to see Uncle Harry there. I really miss him. You're not really going to be thinking about Uncle Harry, I'm just telling you. You're going to be prostrate before the Lord, ensconced in his person, desperately hopeful to enjoy him with all perfection, and you will because sin will not stand in the way. It will all be washed away. You are saved to sin no more, and that will happen in heaven. It's a blessing. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. The redeeming love of Jesus Christ. Do you think about that? Or do you think about how you should be paid more for what you do? What do you focus on? Nothing wrong with thinking that if it's true, but don't meditate on it. Meditate on what he has done and who he is. That God would become flesh for you. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Look forward to that day. You will enjoy singing to him with perfection. No distractions, even good ones. There'll be no distractions. You'll be so enraptured with who he is. You will worship him in perfection. Point number three. I'm going to ask you to skip down with me. We'll conclude with verse 15 in a bit, but skip down with me to verse 16. And keep a good conscience. Point three is stay clean in your conscience. See, this is every man's problem on a secondary but huge level. He's got no clean conscience. He comes into relationships. In fact, he comes into conversations with ill will toward the person with whom he's trying to get along in the moment and get away from as quickly as possible. He's got no clean conscience. The modern way to say it is there are issues. You know, we're not good. Something stands between us. But Peter says, keep a good conscience. Why? So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It is not your duty. It's not your place. It's not your ability to set everything right with everyone. Ultimately, if you are right in your thinking that someone has made false accusations against you and treated you poorly, the best thing you can do is to exhibit the character of Jesus Christ so that they ultimately will be put to shame by your conduct, not by your correction. Let me just tell you that as a pastor, this is a lifelong endeavor. I talk a lot. That's what I do for a living to a large degree. And it's not unusual that I say something that someone doesn't like. I'm going to guess it's happened this morning. As a result of that, there in turn can be a willingness then for two people to walk away and say, well, I didn't like that. And then maybe that happens the next week, and then maybe the next week, and pretty soon the conversation becomes my character. Well, what's my best response to that? To set Jesus Christ apart in my heart as Lord, and to live with a clean conscience. And let me just tell you, and I think you need to know this. I think this is important for you to hear this. Paul reported this to those to whom he wrote about himself. 
Paul was not sinless. Paul was by no means perfect in his conduct. We see in Romans 7 that there was sin in his life, but he regularly practiced victory over that sin by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul lived with a clear conscience, and so do I. The reason I can say the things that I say to you is that I have a confidence in the Word of God. And I believe that the Word of God is doing a work in my life that's stripping me of my devotion to myself. I'm not telling you by any means that I want you to think of me as having arrived or achieved some level of spiritual maturity that's absolutely way out there. I don't mean that at all. I fight sin, but I want you to know I win the battle. And if you don't know that about your leadership in the church, you need to know that. And if you can't know it because it's not true, then something needs to be done with the leadership. And all I'm talking about here really is being above reproach, as every spiritual leader is called to do. In fact, did you know that every Christian is called to be above reproach in the book of Philippians? How do you do that? You've got to examine your conscience. I've had the great privilege of spending a lot of time with the young men in our church. I love that. I enjoy it. We've had early morning breakfasts. We've had Saturday afternoon coffee, you know, afternoon coffee during the week. I love that. I enjoy it. It's a great blessing to me. It stirs my own spiritual growth. But many, many, many times I've said to young men, counsel them to do what I had no concept of when I was a very young man, and that is to make sure that your conscience is clear. If your conscience is clear, then you can do whatever you want because what you want will be the result of a clear conscience. But if you're, you know, if you're plotting, if you're scheming certain things, if you're you know, living a fairly good life on the surface to a large degree, but there's one pocket of, uh, of stuff in your heart, there's a little corner of uh, manifest depravity that you're hanging on to because you really want to be known for being right and you're going to ultimately prove that somebody else is wrong and you're developing a plan for that that's not a clear conscience that's not a clean conscience again Peter here says keep a good conscience why so that in the thing in which you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame Paul says in Acts 23, verse 1, or it says about him, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Well, that's not how to win friends and influence people. But Paul's conscience was clear, and based on the information he, he had, he was convinced it was the right thing to say. Do you sit to try me according to the law? He says later, he further is willing to ask questions that are dependent upon a clear conscience. And in violation of the law, order me to be struck? Verse 4, but the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee. 
a son of Pharisees, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. So Paul acknowledged that maybe he took a little bit of a wrong turn. He wasn't aware that this was a ruler of the people, but he by no means changed his path. He by no means changed his purpose. His purpose was to point out the fact that he was on trial for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. When he was before Felix, in chapter 24 of Acts, verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. He by no means is saying that I have lived a perfect life with sinlessness, We're not talking about what some would refer to here as Wesleyanism, that he's achieved a degree of sinlessness or perfection. He's saying my conscience is clear. In other words, I apply the gospel not only to the preparation in my life, but also to looking back and acknowledging where I failed. Romans 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. My conscience testifies. In other words, there's this working relationship between who I am as a person and what's bubbling up from within me that's telling me it's right. This is not the still small voice, that phrase that you've heard erroneously many times. This is the reality that you know the difference between what is wrong and what is right. And Paul says this about the Jews at the end of Romans 1, the beginning of Romans 2. He talks about the reality that they go back and forth with a severed conscience and a conscience that's informed And to the degree that you are willing to hear your conscience and respond to your conscience is the degree to which you are being faithful to what you know about what's right and wrong. But the person who says no to his conscience ultimately says no to all that is right. But here's the problem. In many, many people's lives, in fact, I would say in many religious environments, the informing of the conscience is the problem. The conscience is being informed with bad theology. Bad teaching, self-focused, self-loving, self-exalting philosophy. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul wants Timothy, he wants himself, he wants the believers to whom he writes, the believers to whom Timothy ministers, to have a good, clear conscience further in chapter 1 of 1st Timothy verse 18 this command I entrust to you Timothy my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith do you hear that this is a warning to Timothy that there are those who abandoned their conscience and what was the result apostasy Abandonment of the Christian faith. I know people who've done this because a chip at a time, they said no to the conscience. I'll get away with it. Nobody will know. Nobody will see. Years ago when Bill Clinton was being exposed for what was going on in his life, John MacArthur said these words, I'll never forget them. A man who will lie is a man who will do anything. Right? All he's got to do is lie. He's willing to do 
whatever he thinks he can get away with. And what does he have to do to avoid any kind of consequences? Just develop a good practice of effective dishonesty. Just learn to lie about it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, speaking of the requirements for a deacon. Many people think the requirement for a deacon is that he loves to serve. That's part of it. The term diakonos means service. But that's not all. He must be equally above reproach as an elder. Listen to this. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now listen to what this means. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That means he knows the gospel. He knows the power of salvation. He knows the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's got a clear conscience about it. He doesn't give misinformation in his evangelistic efforts. He doesn't try to persuade someone into a fleshly decision. He is rightly informed and he has a good, clear conscience about what the gospel is, about the mystery of the faith. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Friends, I'm here to tell you, this is the basis of the charismatic movement. This is why this is so important that this be dealt with in our little church, that we think rightly about this that you are willing to hold me accountable to being above reproach, and that I'm willing to hold you accountable to being above reproach. And the manifestation of what is going on throughout the world is that there was a lack of willingness at some point for certain leaders to be held to this standard. And where did that start? It started in their own willingness to sever themselves from any relationship with their conscience. And Paul here is pointing out the fact that the Spirit of God himself says explicitly that in later times some will fall away from the faith. And where does that falling away from the faith begin? It begins in the heart. It begins in the heart where everyone, especially leaders, should be devoted to setting Jesus Christ apart in the heart as Lord, acknowledging his lordship and therefore able to live with a clear conscience. But Paul says about those who have abandoned a clear conscience, that they've been seared over as with a hot iron. They're disinterested in purity of thought. They think that so long as they are effective in leadership, convincing people to do certain things, the content of their own hearts doesn't matter. And what is the result? Because they have no relationship with their conscience, they effectively manipulate people into all kinds of crazy conduct. Speaking in tongues, which is utterly and completely different from the tongues of the Bible. Being willing to pretend to perform miracles. Vomiting in the Spirit. Being slain in the Spirit. Again, things that are not even in the Bible. They're not even descriptive, much less prescriptive. But they're willing to do these things because people won't challenge them because they think they've got something to offer them and it's prosperity. You see that? And it starts with a denial of one's own conscience. How though? Let's ask this question. How can you have a clean conscience? I suspect that at this point there are people in the room who, who are saying, I get it, man. I, I'm with you. I, I want that clean conscience. I want to be right with God in my heart. 
I don't want to just have the appearance of godliness and ultimately experience shipwreck. Have you ever experienced a shipwreck? You've seen one. I'm going to guess there's nobody in this room who hasn't seen that ship, the Concordia, laying on its side on that coral reef. 52 people died as a result of the irresponsibility of the captain of that ship. And that's what we're talking about. Shipwreck of the faith that leads to constant depression, constant uncertainty with regard to your theology, constant questioning whether or not the Lord is even good to me or loves me. Constant focus on prosperity, the need for more, the desire to have better and bigger. Here's how you can have a clean conscience. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 says, verse 8, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. The tabernacle was a symbol for the ultimate tabernacle, Jesus Christ. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You hear that? Offerings, gifts, sacrifices cannot make someone perfect in their conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So these things were commanded, but they never could in and of themselves result in a clear conscience. Verse 11, Hebrews 9, But when Christ appeared, this is the deal, this is what we live for, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's how you have a clean conscience. Let nothing... Let nothing stand in the way of a meditation upon the purity of the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I know people who don't have a clear conscience because they've got all kinds of stuff in their past. That is not what certainly results in an unclear conscience. What results in an unclear conscience is a lack of willingness to depend wholly and completely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't have a clear conscience, you're probably holding someone else to a standard that you think you've achieved, which you haven't. To have a clear conscience is to be dependent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 of verse 21, 1 Peter, our study this morning, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. That's what he says. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That moment in which the Spirit of God indwells you is the moment at which you first, for the first time ever in the history of your life, had a clear conscience. Prior to that, you were doing everything you could to bank on your good deeds, 
You were trusting in your good works, probably combined with something that Jesus or some other religious figure did. But in the moment that you are saved, you are utterly and completely dependent upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that he has determined to indwell you, and now you have an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see that? You see why we make such a big deal about understanding and meditating and depending upon the resurrection of Christ? Because that's how you can have a clear conscience. You're depending upon anything else, your conduct, your performance, somebody else's conduct and performance. You don't have a clear conscience. Point number four. Point number four, study the gospel with respect for the lost. Back to verse 15, okay? Back to verse 15. Always being ready. Set, a, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This term here, defense, comes from the Greek term apologia, which means defense. But we get our word apologetics from it. If you're new to Christianity, if you're new to genuine Reformed teaching, you may have never heard that term. And so when you hear the word apologetics, you think of the word apology, and you might be thinking, well, what are we apologizing for? Uh, get this idea into your head that we're talking about a defense. Ultimately, uh, really etymologically, if you go way back, the term apology was to give a defense. It's become to mean something different in our culture, and that's okay. We're not going to fight that battle. But we will say that ultimately what Peter is calling us to in preparation to be evangelistically effective is to be ready, to be ready with that defense, that apologia, that information. What is that information? It's, well, it's information that leads to hope. It's hope that's in you, and you're to deliver it with gentleness and with reverence. You're to love the person who hates you. You're to love the person who hates God, who is so distanced from things of the Lord that he needs your love. He needs Christ's love. We're commanded to pray unceasingly. How can we do that? We've got to be ready. We've got to be ready. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. Let me just tell you, the idea of asking Jesus into your heart is a speculation. Paul says we're destroying that. The idea of making a decision for Jesus, it's a speculation. Paul says we're destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. This is spiritual warfare. That's what he just talked about. Our, our warfare, it's not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What you have is capable of destroying spiritual fortresses if you have the gospel. But if you're so hung up on what someone did, or they did it twice, they did it three times, or they didn't do what you thought they were going to do, you've lost all sight of this purpose, to study the gospel with respect to the lost. That's the idea here. Colossians, uh, let me finish verse 5. It's so important. It's the main point. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying you're taking every thought captive to your obedience to Christ. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's obedience. 
How was he obedient most substantially? By suffering and dying on the cross. And let me get real theological and super practical with you right at the same time. Is your every thought taken captive to his obedience? That'll change your life. If you endeavor for every single one of your thoughts to be held captive, no matter what the thought is, whether it's work-related, relationship-related, whatever it is, if every thought in your mind is taken captive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his obedience on the cross, you will have a clear conscience. You will be effective in ministry. You'll be effective in evangelism because you're thinking much more highly about the person and work of Christ than you are about yourself, even more about the person that you hope to evangelize. It doesn't become about you or them. It becomes about God's glory. Colossians 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you're a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, Study the gospel with respect for the lost, with a consideration of the lost. He says here, do this with gentleness and reverence. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to challenge you to do an inventory of your interaction with unbelievers. Are you gentle with them? Are you reverent of them? It says nothing to do with reverence for God. It's just reverence for the unbeliever. It doesn't mean you worship them. It means you revere that person as someone who is, is created in the image of God. Ultimately, you are revering God by revering that person in the moment. And verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Again, D. Edmund Hebert says here, this conveys a note of triumphant vindication implicit in the it is finished, the, the idea that it is once for all. This is not once for all persons. For you to think that, you have to add the word persons to this. This is more of the explanation, uh, the exclamation point that you sometimes add to things that you might say. I want this done once and for all. That's what this is. Hebert goes on to say, it conveys a note of triumphant vindication implicit in the it is finished from the Savior's own lips on the cross in John 19.30. The once for all offering of Christ stands in contrast to the annual sacrifice of the Jewish high priest on the day of atonement and portrays the absolute sufficiency of his atoning work. I appreciate D. Edmund Hebert, who, by the way, is an Arminian. He's been very faithful to this text to point out the fact that Peter is not saying here that Jesus died for all. That's not what's being said. Again, it's the exclamation of it is once and for all. I might add that this idea stands in contrast to the Roman Catholic idea of a crucifix. Someone holds the crucifix, you know, with Jesus still on the cross. They might not be thinking this, but the point of the crucifix is that Jesus must return to the cross. He must die every time you sin. That's basic Catholic doctrine. Peter, here as the writer of Hebrews, 
I read it to you earlier from Hebrews 9. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was once for all, not like what the Jewish high priest had to commit repeatedly on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And then this phrase from verse 18 in our text this morning, just for the unjust, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's where I got that phrase in your so that statement. That through us, people would be brought to God. How so? That the just has died for the unjust and that that great act of selfless, humble ministry would be applied to those whom you know and to whom I know. Hebrews 9, 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. How do you know that Christ died for you? You want him to return. You eagerly desire his return. You don't just get involved in the conversation when it comes up. You are on a daily basis longing for him to return to take you home. That's how you can know that his death was given for you. Again, why? So that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. So this is why we evangelize. As I told you earlier, we would look at the preparation necessary for evangelism so that through us, others would be brought to God. Peter concludes this verse with these words, He, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. His body died, but his spirit remained alive. Jesus Christ is God eternal. He didn't stop being God. God did not die. So that death in the flesh ultimately being overturned by the power of the resurrection is where your hope must be if you are to be an effective evangelist. Persuading people to invite Jesus into their life does nothing but produce a false sense of security. You want people to understand the power of the resurrection not only over physical death, but over the second death, the eternal suffering that we all deserve. I want to conclude with these words from John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. In the very act, she was caught having sex in the moment. And so they set her there before the public venue. And they say to Jesus Christ, she's been caught in the act. Verse 5, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? You see, this happened throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, that they would juxtapose the teachings of Moses to his and attempt to trap him. In one case, Declaring his deity, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So this didn't take Jesus by surprise. In fact, he was quite ready. He was prepared to give a defense for the hope, an account for the hope that is in him. 
They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. You see the great contrast between this evangelistic effort is over against the one that says, just ask Jesus into your heart. We'll get you on the Sunday school roll. Eventually, we'll get you involved in some kind of activity. You know, we'll have you doing some things, get you into the flow of things. And then in that person's life, surfaces a great deal of lack of victory over particular sin. And rather than tracing that person's life back to some point at which regeneration took place, the point at which Jesus would have said to that person, go and sin no more. Instead, they say, well, didn't you ask Jesus into your heart? The records show here that, you know, on August 19th, 1998, you made a decision for Jesus. Right? Well, maybe you just need to do that again. You see the great contrast between such a silly and faulty and hopeless approach? What does Jesus do? He tells her to sin no more. He gives her hope. He points to the reality that there is no one who has sinned more greatly than you have. You have not sinned more greatly than anyone else. It's not a matter of degrees of sin. It's not a matter of making a choice, making a decision. It is a matter of recognizing the reality that when Jesus Christ provides a hunger for righteousness in a person's soul, there is an interest in overcoming sin. So I believe we showed you from this text in an effort to help you and myself prepare for effective evangelism. There's a call upon our lives to suffer for what is good and to be blessed, to set apart Christ in our hearts as master, to stay clean in our conscience, but also to study the gospel with respect for the lost, to think of the lost when you think of what Christ accomplished for his Father, but also on behalf of those, that he himself, Jesus Christ, would become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. Father, with great joy, we rest in this truth we know that you have determined whom you have chosen to set your grace upon ultimately. And yet you've given us the great blessing of extending the kindness to others that you've extended to us. Help us to be ready. Lord, help us to live lives that in fact would draw others unto us. Ultimately that you are drawing them unto your Son that they would see that there is hope in us. That they would want to know the source of that hope. We ask that you would help us that before we would develop a plan for going out and sharing the gospel, that we would be committed to preparation. Being prepared in our own hearts, setting Christ apart as Lord, moment by moment by moment by moment, being ready. Living with a clear conscience.
which is not impossible. You've made that possible. Repenting of our sin, calling attention to it ourselves rather than hoping no one else does. But if they do, okay, we'll confess it. But really willing to blow the whistle on ourselves, drawing attention to the sin which is committed against Christ that ultimately put him on the cross that covered that very sin. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people genuinely, not just to saying that we are devoted to the gospel, but actually being devoted to it. That we would understand and and be ready to communicate the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with great thanksgiving to you, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.